preparation for our observance of the Lord's table tonight, I want you to open your Bibles to the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 52. We often refer to Isaiah 53. It's the passage that we've been looking at as we observe this table together, but it actually begins in 52. This is a song. It is um, one of the servant songs in Isaiah. It is prophetic. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to take some time to read it tonight. Isaiah 52. And I think before I read it, let me just demonstrate once again how this song is laid out. And I did this visually tonight because I think this, this will help. Um, I know it says Isaiah 53, but it's beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13. This is a, a song, and it has five stanzas. Uh, five stanzas, three verses each, uh, if you're looking at the verse numbers. But there is a, a system to these stanzas as they're in the text. And it's a common way that it is set up that uh, the Hebrew mind anyway would, would think in these terms in order to emphasize a point. A technical term for this is chiasmus. And uh, it's, it's to, to emphasize, really it's the center of this song that emphasizes its importance. So let me show you how that is set up. You have the first stanza, that's uh, chapter 52 verses 13 to 15, and there it's the servant's exaltation. The one being spoken of here, he'll be exalted. And um, it talks about him being exalted. Well, the last stanza, stanza 5, that's chapter 53, verses 10 to 12, that also speaks of the servant's exaltation. So it, opening and end, those kind of mirror each other. The second stanza, uh, 53, 1 through 3, speaks of the servant's rejection. We looked at that two months ago when we observed the Lord's table together being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the third stanza as well, 53, 7 through 9, speaks of the servant's rejection. And so that's also a theme of that stanza. And that leaves us the last stanza right in the middle, that stanza 3, verses 4 through 6, and it talks about the servant's substitution. So what you have, the song is set up where you can see that the ends kind of mirror each other, one and five, and two and four, and then and, and Hebrew mind would do this because the emphasis is on the center of that. And so this is why the servant is exalted and rejected as well, because what he was doing was offering himself as a substitution. And by doing so, he faced rejection, but also will face exaltation. And so this is the way this song really is laid out for us. So maybe that'll help you, and you can see that as we read it together. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Tonight I want to focus our attention on the emphasis of this song, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53, which emphasize Jesus as our substitute. Jesus, our substitute. It was in the year 1633 that a Dutch artist named Rembrandt Marmezoon van Rijn, I think that's how you say that, he painted this portrait entitled The Raising of the Cross. We would know this guy simply as Rembrandt. And that was a very famous painting that he had painted. But what do you notice about that painting? There's kind of a spotlight right at the foot of that cross. And there's a particular guy there that seems to be highlighted. Do you know who that is? It's Rembrandt. He painted himself in this picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. And he did so to give the right notion 
that it was actually him and his own sin that contributed to the death of Jesus at the cross. That it's as if he were there because his sin crucified the Savior. And he makes this portrait of it for all to see. I find it interesting that in Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah actually does the same kind of thing with words. It's like he puts himself here in what's taking place with this substitution of the servant. You can see that just in the language. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. He uses these kinds of personal pronouns in speaking of the servant. Verse 4, he says, he has borne our griefs. Verse 5, he was wounded, he was crushed upon him and his stripes. And later on in verse 6, the Lord laid on him. And so you have these personal pronouns referring to the servant, but you also have these plural pronouns. Verse 4, it's our griefs and our sorrows, and we esteemed certain things, and it's our transgressions in verse 5, and it's our iniquities, and it brings us peace, and we are healed at the end of verse 5, and we are like sheep, and we have turned, but the iniquity of us all was laid on him. You can see how, how Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is putting himself prophetically in what would take place at the cross. This is what was going on with him, but this was really what was going on for us. Tonight, I want to focus on what really was this, transgre- this transaction at the cross, this substitution. And when we look at it, we're going to note in particular two things. That first of all, Jesus bore our consequences on the cross. And then that Jesus also bore our condemnation. I want us to note how Jesus bore the consequences of our sin at the cross. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our what? Our what? Our griefs. What does that mean that Christ bore our griefs? What does that word mean? This word is actually used 24 times in your Old Testament. Most often, this word is translated a different way. 19 times it's translated as a different way. Maybe you have a little marginal reference in your Bible. If you do, it might be uh, up in verse 3 where it says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the same word grief translated in verse 4. And I have a little marginal reference in my Bible that says, here's a different way that word is translated. Do you have that? What does it say? Instead of griefs, what does it say? What does it say? Sickness or illness. In fact, most often in the Bible, when it uses this term, this Hebrew word, it's translated as sickness. For instance, in 1 Kings 17, 17, we have the story of Elijah and the widow. And you may recall that the Lord delivered the widow from famine by sending Elijah there. Well, later on, do you remember what happened to that that widow's son? He became ill and he died. The Lord miraculously resurrected him through Elijah, but... In speaking of that, 1 Kings 17, 17 says, 
that this child experienced illness. And that's the word that's used here, translated as grief. So literally, you could say this, Jesus bore our illness, sickness. But there's another word, verse 4. He bore our griefs or illness, and he carried our what? Our sorrows. Again, this word is used back in verse 3, speaking of Jesus as a man of sorrows. And I have a, a marginal note, and in my note it says it can be translated as pains or suffering. And 11 times in the Old Testament it is translated that way. For instance, in used in, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 when it talks about the children of Israel and their being under the harsh taskmasters of Egypt and it says that they endured sufferings. The idea of painful treatment. So what are we to make of this when it says that Jesus bore our illnesses literally and carried our pains. Is the Bible simply speaking metaphorically? Like, well, sin is kind of like suffering and sorrow, and it's a malady, and therefore it's just substituting illness and pain for that, and therefore we're to read this entirely metaphorically. It's not talking about literal sickness and illness. You've probably read it that way, haven't you? Given the rest of the, the, what it says, you've said, well, this is just kind of, it wasn't speaking literally this way. However, it does say that Jesus bore these things, and how did he do so? Well, look at the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. Immediately after that, Matthew demonstrates Jesus' ministry of healing. And he does so by giving examples of three types of people that are healed that were outcasts of society. Jesus cleanses a leper in the first four verses of the eighth chapter, and he does so by touching the leper. He then heals uh, a centurion's son, beginning in verse 5. And this is someone that was not of the house of Israel. This is someone that wasn't of the chosen people of God, a Gentile. And Jesus has compassion on them. And beginning in verse 14, Jesus heals a woman who also had a low status in the first century. But Jesus has compassion. It happens to be Peter's mother-in-law. I don't think that's why uh, you know, it's a person of low status but simply that she was a woman. But the same thing, Jesus touches her and heals her and raises her up. So look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, now notice verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet who? Isaiah, when he said, he took our what? Illnesses and bore our what? Diseases. 
All right, now you tell me, how is the Holy Spirit through the pen of Matthew interpreting Isaiah 53, 4? Metaphorically, he's speaking quite literally, isn't he? The context is obviously that of physical healing. And Matthew says this was to fulfill what was happening in Isaiah 53. Now, how do you explain that? Well, our charismatic brethren, and I do say brethren, there are those of charismatic persuasion who understand and rightly believe the gospel. But there are charismatic brethren who focus on these verses and say this demonstrates that a part of Jesus' atonement is actually physical healing. And that's why you have some people that would travel the country as a faith healer. You ever heard of those? And they would fill these arenas with people with all kinds of illnesses and infirmities and they would say, Jesus came to bear away our illnesses and infirmities, so if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. And you can imagine the draw to that, and uh, there's big business in that, unfortunately, and unfortunately it sets a number of people up for disappointment. But is that how we are to read this? That with enough faith, you can be physically healed. Well, I don't think that is the case because if you think that, if enough faith I have in Jesus, he will heal my illnesses and diseases, that really flies in the face of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, Paul had an ailment, likely a physical ailment, and he said, I asked the Lord three times to deliver me from this. And do you remember his response? What did the Lord tell him? Was it, You don't have enough faith. Because if you just had enough faith, Paul, you would be delivered of that. No, it had nothing to do with a faith or lack thereof in this ailment. God says, I did it that my glory would be known in you. I did it so that you would depend on me. So it can't possibly be that that a lack of faith is why any of us are sick and get ill and even die. So what is it talking about when it says Jesus bore our illnesses and diseases? Well, in some way, Jesus is the answer to our physical ailments. And that brings us to this question, what is the nature of our physical ailments? Why does anybody get sick? And it's the skeptic's question, If God does heal, and Jesus even healed when he was on earth, why doesn't he heal everybody? And so the question before us is, if Jesus bears our illnesses, why isn't everybody healed? How do these things connect? And to answer that question, here's another question. Why do we get sick? Undoubtedly, if you've lived on this earth any amount of time, you have been faced even with severe illness perhaps, or at least you've seen it in others, maybe even a loved one that has taken their life. And maybe you've asked this question, why like this? 
Why does anybody get sick? Well, I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. book of Romans in the third chapter tells us this about ourselves. It's a familiar verse, but we don't often read it in context. Romans 3.23 says this. Most of you could quote this. For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We often use that verse in evangelism, and we're right to do so, to point out the fact that everybody sins. But really, the point of that verse is not that everybody sins presently, like perhaps even today, certainly, you have sinned. Because the tense of the verse says this, everybody had sinned. And it's pointing to a particular time in the past. Everybody sinned. And therefore, there are these consequences of falling short of the glory of God. And what this verse is actually pointing to is a time in past when we, through our representative, the representative of our race, our being in Adam, we sinned. When did that happen? That was early on in the garden. You say, well, I wasn't there. No, but we were in Adam. And Adam is the representative of our race. And we have a solidarity with Adam by nature of being human. And when Adam chose to sin and violate God's law, we sinned with Adam. It's like God looks at it all as a race and people sinned in Adam. How do we know that to be true? We know that to be true because, beloved, isn't it tragically true that sometimes even babies die before they ever actually sin. Is that unjust of God? The truth is, as the old primer stated, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And because of that, there is sickness and illness that comes upon all of us because it's the result of living in a fallen world under the curse of sin. Why does anybody get sick? Because we've all sinned. And it's a consequence of sin. And it is a just penalty. Sometimes we we need to look at it this, this way. The Bible says the penalty, the payment for sin is what? Is death. It doesn't say illness. It says death. But what does illness bring? We might say, well, somebody passed away and, and they died of old age. What does that mean? It means that they finally succumbed to illness, to some weakness of body. And it is the consequence of sin. Our sin in Adam is rebellion against God. 
The Bible is explicit about this. Look at Psalm 90. Look at the 90th Psalm. This is a Psalm of Moses. And in Psalm 90, verse 1, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, and before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away, talking about humanity as with the flood. They're all like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, it's renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. He's contrasting the eternality of God with the transiency of mankind. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your what? Your anger. And by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. You say, well, Matt, I don't like what you're saying. That God is angry and the reason we get sick and die is because of his wrath. And all I would say is those aren't my words, those are God's words. And that is a just penalty for someone who has high-handedly rebelled against their creator. And therefore, everybody gets ill. And all of us, unless the Lord tarries, will die. The real question to me is not why is there illness, sickness, and death. The real question to me is why is anybody healed? If we've all sinned and are under a just penalty, why does anybody recover? And all that is is the compassion of God. that sometimes even miraculously people are healed and don't succumb to their illnesses. And so when it says that Jesus bore our illnesses, he carried our pains, it is talking literally about these physical things that came about as a result of sin. And so when the writer, when Isaiah in Isaiah 53 speaks of these things, he's talking about not the sin itself, but he's talking about Jesus also dealt with the consequence of sin. That there would be healing. In fact, go back to Matthew chapter 8. Did you notice how this happened when Matthew talks about this? Matthew says in Matthew 8 and verse 17 that when Jesus was healing, he was fulfilling this promise of, or this prophecy of him taking our illness and bearing our diseases. And right before that, we have this record of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And look at what it says in verse 14. Jesus saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever and he touched her hand. 
Why did Jesus heal that way? He could have just said something. He could have just thought something. She could have just been raised up. But he reaches out and he touches her hand. Why? Whenever you find in the Scripture someone stretching out their hand and laying their hand on something, it's giving the picture of transference. That in that sacrifice, when someone would lay their hands on the animal, it's, it's the transmission of my sin to this animal that would actually bear my sin away or bear its consequence. And when Jesus reaches and touches this woman, it's almost as if not just from him goes the life-giving principle to reverse her disease, but it's as if he took that disease to himself. And there he would deal with the real root of that disease in his own body eventually on Calvary. And in that sense, he's bearing illnesses. He's carrying grief. And he does so in himself when he offers himself as a remedy for those illnesses. Jesus bore the consequences of sin, bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. And and this is stated elsewhere in the Scripture. Look at the 103rd Psalm. Psalm 103. You're probably familiar with the psalm, the first verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your what? Diseases. Now, have you ever read that and scratched your head and said, He doesn't heal all diseases. I know people that have succumbed to their diseases. So I must take this metaphorically. Well, again, I ask you the question, should we? Does Jesus ultimately heal his own? Well, in order to understand that question, I want us to look secondly at this, and we'll be done tonight. Back in Isaiah 53, I know I've left you on a cliff. I promise to come back to that. Isaiah 53, and the rest of this stanza, the first stanza speaks of Christ bearing the consequence of our sin, these griefs, illnesses, these pains. Verse 5, but we understand when this happened, what was really going on is that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was being crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed Because we, like sheep, have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore the condemnation for sin. We know that. And so thereby he removed the consequences of sin, and that was the sign that he really did come to deal with the root problem of sin. In other words, the reason that he bears away illnesses and pains in verse 4 is because he was actually dealing with the root sin of verses 5 and 6. The real problem. Jesus mentioned this in his earthly life. Go back to Matthew. We were in chapter 8. Look at chapter 9. Do you remember this story? 
Matthew 9, verse 1, it says this of Jesus. Getting to a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk. Okay, stop right there. You answer the question of verse 5. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? Which one is easier? Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because if you say that, how do you know if it happened? Right? But if you say to somebody, rise up and walk, what are you expecting? You're expecting to see what happened. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now go to verse 6. Jesus says, But that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's exactly what the man did. And here's what Jesus is saying. That you would know that I can deal not simply with the circumstantial problem of his paralysis, but the root problem of his sin. I'm going to heal the man to show you that I dealt with his sin too. And this is exactly what Isaiah is telling us. He deals with all the consequences of our sin because he has dealt with the condemnation of sin. Now, the question that's outlined in our mind tonight is this. Then why do I still get sick? Well, don't you know that you don't receive all the benefits of Christ's atonement immediately right now? One of the benefits of the atonement of Christ and having faith in Him is that you will receive the adoption as sons, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the redemption of our what? bodies. That someday, my friend, you, if you know Christ, you are going to have a glorified body free of illness and pain. It's a resurrected body. It's you. It's, it's, it's familiar, but it's entirely new and without sin or the consequences of sin. But you don't get that the moment you receive Christ by faith. But let me ask you, is it coming? Absolutely. And Jesus Christ certainly bore our illnesses and sicknesses because someday, beloved, when you see him face to face, you'll be entirely healed of all those things because he has dealt with the root problem of sin. And he did so as our substitute. If you want to read about that, you read Revelation 21, right? Here's heaven, and there's no more pain. And there's no more sickness or dying or sorrow. Why? Because Jesus bore all that away. He did so when he dealt with our sin, our greatest problem. 
And I was reminded of this this week, starkly again, when I read of a college friend of ours. And she had a 17-year-old niece. A 17-year-old young lady. And this young lady contracted influenza B virus. And she initially started out not feeling well, and then it seemed to get worse, and eventually they took her to the emergency room and rushed her to the hospital. And it settled in her heart and attacked her heart, and that 17-year-old young woman died. Just like that. And knowing the family, it was shocking to me. But I was struck by this statement. After they'd found out that she had died, my friend said, she has been healed. Has she? She knew the Lord. She has been healed. No more pain. No more suffering. All the consequences of sin are gone. Why? Because Jesus dealt with the condemnation of sin. And that awaits us all. He bears our sorrows. He bears our pain. And someday it will be all gone away, my friend. And that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray together.